You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. All right. We got this video kind of as an introduction to this morning. We are looking at the book of uh, Acts, chapter 17. Paul makes it to Athens, and they're surrounded by idols. And as we, get to, as we think about this in Athens, I see it in America. Like, they were excited about every other god. They were worshiping the other gods, and we do the same. We're excited about our god of football, or our god of, of Disneyland, or our god of, fast, of eating, like Kobayashi on 4th of July. That was awesome. Um, and so we get excited about these things. And so, but oftentimes when it comes to God, when it comes to, to Jesus Christ, we get so mellow, right? How many times have, have you fallen asleep in service? I'm sure never when, when I've been speaking, obviously, right? Um, but how many times have we all fallen asleep? But you never fall asleep during the fourth quarter of a football game when you're there at the stadium, right? And so we're going to try something today. We're going to be excited about, uh, about this passage, excited about what God's doing. We got some I just got to tell you, side note, there is some awesome stuff coming up in the next couple of months here at Discovery. And so I am super excited about it. You're going to hear about it next week. And so there are some amazing things. There's stuff to be excited about. There's stuff to be excited about this morning. So if everyone will stand with me, we're going to cheer just like we scored. You know, it's the last second overtime. Our team won, all right? And so when I lift up my hands, that's a sign. I want to hear you guys cheer, all right? Are you ready for this? Okay, there you go. That's what I like to see. That's getting into the fourth quarter, all right? Overtime is here. The football goes. And so we are in Acts chapter 17, and this is one of the coolest stories in Acts is Paul visits Athens. Are you excited? All right. Okay, we are, um, God is here, God is present in this morning. Are you excited? All right, and uh, to top it all off, at the end of service, Delaney uh, Linkus is getting baptized. Yeah, all right, go ahead and grab a seat. There is awesome stuff, and so we get so excited about football, but we should be just as excited about Delaney getting baptized, right? So thank you guys, that's exciting, this is great news. So this morning, we're, we're going into Acts 17, but, begin, but first I want to share a story about a guy named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram was an amazingly intelligent man, a man with unlimited potential. He was the first American missionary that this country has ever sent out. Adoniram was so, so smart, by, uh, he read at the age of three, he took navigation lessons by the age of 10, he studied theology as a kid, they said that he was teaching his, his church, uh, was, he was teaching the adult class on Revelation in the original language at age 12. Right? That's crazy. Um, so this guy's super smart. Um, he entered Providence College, which is now Brown University, at age 17, and he had missed a whole year of school. Uh, he was just had a whole year of his life wiped out because of health issues, all right? So basically, at 16, he's starting in a university. This guy's potential was unlimited. Many of the professors were intimidated by his intelligence, and all of them believed that his, his ceiling was unlimited, Many believe that he had the potential, because he came from a good family, he had the potential to be the next president of the United States. At the very least, if he was a, a university president, that would almost be like an entry-level position for this guy. He had the opportunity for wealth, he had the opportunity for power, for influence. All this was at his fingertips. And he believed there was one thing more important, was Jesus Christ. He decided that he was being called into the mission field, 
And like I said, at this time, America had not sent out a missionary and, and he wanted to go into the mission field. He wanted to pass up all of this. What, what in our society we consider our own gods, our own idols, the idol of wealth, the idol of power, the idol of pride, the idol of prestige, the idol of a safe life, the idol of a big home and, and everything that you could ever want. He's willing to pass that all up because of the one true God. It was Jesus Christ. And so he is willing to be a missionary. And so America didn't have a missionary society to send. So he reached out to the English Missionary Society and they said, we'd love to send you. You got great potential, but you're not from England. We can't send you. And so he was part of starting the American Missionary Society and they sent him out. And as he was preparing to go on the mission field, he believed that God was calling him along with a woman that he had been courting. He'd been courting her through several visits, but mostly through letters. And he knew in order for him to take Anne, this beautiful, talented, dream girl of his, on the mission field, there's one huge step that he would have to overcome, and that was to ask her parents. And I can't imagine what it would be like to pin this letter that I'm about to read to you. I, I, I made sure I wrote down every word because I wanted to read to you what it would be like to write this letter. Guys, if you've ever asked a lady to marry you, imagine writing her parents. If you ever had that intimidating moment where you had to ask mom and dad for her hand in marriage, I remember that moment like it was yesterday. But it was nothing like this. As a father of two little girls, I can't imagine receiving this letter. And I would just want to read it to you now. Adoniram wrote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of, he, of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you imagine receiving that letter? This is missionaries back at the turn of the 1800s. A missionary meant that you'd go off and probably never see your family again. The missionary meant that you'd go and try to witness to people that maybe were savages. Witness to people that might take your life, and if they don't, the climate probably will, the diseases, the wild animals. It was a life destined for death. And this is what he asked his, her parents to give permission for. And as I read this letter, you step back and you think, what in the world would ever possess someone to want to go and do that? He had everything at his fingertips. He could have been the next president of this country. And he gave up all that for health struggles, for possible death from the hands of the natives, and to take Anne with him because of one thing. Jesus Christ was above everything else. As we get to this chapter in 17, it's, it's an amazing story. If you are familiar with the book of Acts, you're probably familiar with the story about Paul going to Athens and being confronted with a people that are worshiping many different gods. 
Athens was uh, the center, the hub of the Greek culture. The Greek culture had been heavily influential for hundreds of years and it all resonated in this city. This was the place where the great minds had all come. This is the place where the Greek plays that everyone watched originated. This is the place where the Greek thinking that everyone thought originated. The Greek language was what everyone spoke and this was the hub. Everything influential, everything philosophical, everything political in the Greek society resonated here in Athens. And so we pick up on the story, Paul is in Berea, and there's trouble in Berea, there's an uprising, and so the Bereans sneak him out in the darkness of night, and many believe they put him on a boat and they send him down to Athens. Had he gone by boat, he would have landed in the port city of of Porus. And at this port city, Athens had paved a road from this little port city to their town so that everyone would know how to get to Athens. Everyone would be directed, and not only was this a paved road, they built a 50-foot wall on either side so you wouldn't be distracted on your way to Athens. Along this wall are carvings and drawings of the gods that they worship there in Athens. Athens was littered with idols and gods and many different ways to worship. There's a God for everything, a God for, for prosperity, there's a God for wealth, there's a God for, for your crops, there's a God for pride, there's a God for sex, there's a God for everything, and they worshiped all of them. And so along this journey, you're looking at these, this wall, as far as you can see, lined with idols, little statues, carvings, to remind you where you're headed. It was said that at this time in Athens, it was easier to find an idol or a god than it was to encounter another person. That's how many there were. And so this is what Paul steps into. And as I read the story, I think how intimidating it would be to be Paul. He was highly educated, but imagine that you're just a rabbi from a far off country and now you're headed into this Mecca, to the center of all cultural significance. I would have been so intimidated As you're walking on this journey and these walls are huge and you see idol after idol and you see things that people are drawn away from the one true God, from the one true answer and you're going in there thinking, I have the answer. Why would anyone listen to me? As you think of Adoniram, he's headed to Burma. He's headed to a country that's never had a a Western visitor, headed to a country that's never had a missionary. They've never seen a white person. He's headed to this area that he's going to try to tell them about Jesus and he doesn't know if he's going to make it past day one. And if he does make it past, if they are inviting enough to be, greet him in, will he be healthy enough to continue a ministry or will the tropic diseases take his life, take his life in Anne's? I got to think how intimidating that would be as you're on that boat, scared. As you're Paul going down that road, scared. And as I was thinking about that, I think uh, while that seems extreme and and those would have been intimidating, I I see a correlation with us tomorrow morning on your way to work. How intimidating is it sometimes to speak up for Jesus Christ at the water cooler? To let other people know that you went to church on Sunday. To let other people know I I don't like it when you talk like that around me or I'm not going to laugh at that dirty joke. That's intimidating. To be a student and have the other students judging you, everything you say. To know that they're going to criticize you and they're going to talk about you at the locker room afterwards. How intimidating. 
Adoniram and Paul's story isn't all that different from ours because they're headed to a culture that is worshiping everything else. Our culture is worshiping everything else but Jesus Christ, it seems, at times. Our culture is turning to self-help books and turning to, to quick fixes. That our relationship or marriage is falling apart, that will quickly turn to a divorce or turn to something else that'll make it worse. That our culture is telling us that this quick fix, this addiction, this pornography, this drinking, this gossip, this power, this revenge, this anger, all these things will fix the problem instead of turning to Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Adoniram, as we look at Paul, we can look at ourselves and see we're in this same situation, facing a culture that's turning to many different gods when there's one true God. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it. Acts 17, we'll also have it up on the screen, starting with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was so full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. He's greatly disturbed. He's in this land, this culturally influential place, and everyone there is influenced by these gods. And I love that his first step is go to the synagogue. It's to go to those that should know better. Granted, they weren't Christians yet, but they had the same foundation of the Jewish God of Yahweh. They should have known different. They should have been living different. They should have been living in a way that is pursuing Yahweh, not all these other idols. And so this is where he begins, and he begins by reasoning with them. He begins by saying, hey, what's going on? Why are we not following the one true God? And let me tell you about that one true God's son, Jesus Christ, who came for us. And so he begins with the believers. And as we look at our cultural influence, that's where we need to begin, is those that are supposed to be turning to Jesus Christ. People like myself and you, are we making Jesus our priority? In your life, we listed all those other idols that our society has. Are we turning to those are returning to God. And so he begins there and then he works his way out to the marketplace to those that he doesn't hold at the same level of expectation. The people of Athens wouldn't have known better. And so he begins to teach and tell them about his God. He first encounters a, a group of philosophers, two different groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans uh, were people that believed that the gods, if there was a divinity, is separate from mankind. And that mankind is just meant to live this life, this existence, separate, that there's not much to this existence, that when you die, it ends. And so your whole purpose was to find pleasure within limits uh, in your current life. Then there was the Stoics that believed there is this divine nature. They didn't believe it in Yahweh, but that there's this life. They called it the life. And this life was in all of nature, in animals and people. And that when you were born, life came in you. And so you were sort of connected to this divine idea. But when you died, life left. And that was the end. Life just went back to this kind of cloud. And so that was the end of your existence. So both, both philosophies were very different, but they both had the same conclusion about the end times, about the end of your life, that when you, when you died, when your body took its last breath, you just ceased to, ceased to exist. And so this is the group that Paul has been teaching to everyone, and this is the group, these two mindsets that have been perked by his teaching, and we'll see why. 
A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. To say that there was something after death is throwing everybody off. They, they see him as just as a babbler. They see him as preaching these crazy things. Because there's, we, we all know there's nothing after death. How could this Jesus come back to life? And you know that in his teaching, it wasn't just this one sentence. Much of Acts, we know that there is a lot of teaching that Luke did. Luke could only record uh, much of teaching that Paul did. Luke could only record little bits and segments. And so the teaching that Paul did, he was telling them about Jesus. He was telling them about his death and his resurrection. He's telling them about this resurrection brought salvation for you and I, that we would be dead in our sins, but that we are alive again if we accept him, if we repent, if we turn and follow Jesus. And so this idea of this resurrection isn't just about Jesus' resurrection, but he's telling them that we could live again in eternity with heaven. And so it seems like a babbler speaking nonsense. But they're interested. Because this is the epicenter for all thought. If there's going to be a new idea, it's going to come out of Athens. And so they're intrigued by this new way of thinking. Verse 19 says, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting at the Agropolis, Agrapolis, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And so they go to this place. We have a picture. It's this rock form, this outcropping on the front, where it can overlook the city. And so there's this, there's this outcropping that this is where all the great philosophers have gone. The wisest of men, the wisest of listeners, the wisest of women have all gone and learned here, have taught here. Many believe this is where Plato and Socrates would have gone and spoke. And so he's invited this rabbi from a foreign land to come and speak here. And so this is a great opportunity. And he forms the gospel in such a way to reach these people. I love this as we've gone through the book of Acts. We've seen that Paul will shape the gospel. It's the same message. He teaches the same message every time about Jesus and the resurrection, about the forgiveness of our sins, about our need to give our life over to him. But he does it different each time to fit the need. When he's in the Jewish synagogue in a small town, we see previously in Acts, he begins with the Old Testament. And he gives scripture references and, and he tells and he brings them in and says, let me tell you about this Messiah that we had been promised. He's here. He came, he died, he rose again and you have a chance to believe in him. To the slave girl, it looked different. His witnessing to her was to free her from the demons that were inside her. To free her and set her free and to tell her about this Jesus that could set us all free from our sins. And to the educated in Athens, he has this opportunity to present to them, to meet them in their culture and present to them about Jesus Christ in a way that they would understand, in a philosophical way. And so it's a great example for us as we are believers, as we look at finding our place in God's story is to tell others about him. What's that look like? That looks differently if you're in class. That looks differently at your work. That looks differently in your home or to your neighbor. It's not a one-size-fits-all evangelism plan. How can you apply God's truth in a way that would reach the person that you've been set to influence? And so we see this in Paul. And so it says in verse 20, you are bringing some, they say to him, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. 
All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I kind of feel like this is Luke just taking a dig at the Athenians, right? And he's just like, yeah, they're a bunch of lazy guys, all right? And so, but they go on and, and you see that Paul is about to address the entire group in a unique way. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Agrippus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He first meets them where they're at. I see that you're a highly religious people. I see that you want to worship. And you even have this idol, this spot where it's to the unknown God, just in case you're missing, the, uh, missing a God. We, we have this label to the unknown God that we'll still even worship that in case we don't want to anger this God that maybe we're missing. Well, let me tell you about that one, about the one that you've missed. I've seen so many idols, but let me tell you about the one true God, the supreme God. Verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He begins right away by addressing who the God is that he's telling about. Who this unknown God is, is the God above all other gods. He's the supreme God. He's the one that created everything, heavens and earth. And he doesn't reside in something that man could make in a temple. He continues, and he is not served by human hands as if he need, needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He brings it that he says, this God, let me tell you about the unknown God. He's created all, and he doesn't, he's not residing in a human form, is in a temple, in an idol. He's not, he doesn't need anything that we can make, but I love how he brings it to a personal this God, this unknown God, gives you breath. I wonder if at that point, he even just stops and takes a breath. This unknown God did that. This unknown God's what's sustaining your life. This unknown God is breathing into you now. He says, for one man, he made all nations that they should inhibit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He's not far from any one of us. At this place where great minds have spoken, at this place where great ideas have been birthed, Paul is telling us, you matter. You have all these gods. The city is littered with idols and shrines and drawings and, and, and temples. And everything where you look, there's a new god, there's a new idol. But let me tell you about the god above it all, the unknown god. He gives you breath. The unknown god wants a relationship with you. This is the supreme god. This is what is exciting. As we talk about that, there's that we get excited over a football game, let us get excited about this. That amongst everything else in our culture, everything that our society tells us to turn to, to turn to power, to turn to revenge, to turn to wealth, to turn to pride, there's a God that's better than all of that, and he wants a relationship with us. He's breathing air into our lives. How awesome is that? 
What a testimony that Paul is telling them. And he continues. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of, you, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He uses their own culture. Like I said, he approaches everyone differently. And to the, to the society, he uses their, their own poets. And he brings a story to life. I assume they're probably not thinking he's a babbler anymore. He's a lot more educated than they believed. And he continues, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I love this. He meets them where he's, they're at. In the past, you've turned to all these idols. And he's on this outcropping overlooking the city, and he can point to all the different temples. Many of them are probably holding little idols there. They said, in the past, you've turned to these. And God's going to overlook that. Because you were ignorant. Because you didn't know. But now that you know, now that you know we're held accountable, now that we know we need to follow the one true God, now that we know we need to repent and turn to him. It's a message to these people of Athens. It's a message to us. We know. We know the one true God. And so if we're turning anywhere else other than Jesus Christ for our answers, for our comfort, for our security, we need to repent and turn back to him. Now we know. And so he continues, and for he sat a day when he, for he sat, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he had appointed. He had given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so we can assume that he's already told about Jesus Christ. We can assume that he's told about who Jesus was and about his life and about his death and his on the cross and his resurrection. And then it says, and he says, raising him from the dead. There's that catch. These people are opposed to that, this idea, everything ends at death, and so at that, they balk. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. So this idea of resurrection has made, them, made many of them turn away. Many of them put him aside. But some are intrigued. Some continue to listen and learn. It says in verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Grapagus, while also a woman named Damaris was a number of others. I think Luke includes these two people for a reason. For us to see that the message of Jesus Christ is a broad one to the entire council but it's also an individual one to each one of us. In the book of Luke, Jesus tells a story about the woman that lost the coins or the shepherd that lost the sheep, right? The story you're familiar with, that a shepherd has 100 sheep, and, but one's missing. So he secures the 99, and then he goes and searches everywhere. He looks in the, little, in the valleys, he looks on the mountaintops until he finds his one sheep. And he puts it over his shoulders and he goes back and he's rejoicing. He tells the other shepherds as he walks by, I found my sheep. He's excited and he rejoices. 
It says that it's the same way when a lost soul comes to Jesus. It says in Luke 15, in the same way I will tell you, there is great rejoicing in the presence of the angel of God, in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents when we accept Jesus Christ. This morning, as Delaney gets baptized, the angels are going to be rejoicing. Isn't that awesome? We get to be part of this celebration. And we get to be part of the same celebration that happened 2,000 years ago when these two people accepted the message that Paul had shared. What a reason to rejoice. That's so much greater than any football game or hot dog eating contest. What a reason to celebrate as we celebrate with the angels. And that's because they gave their life over because they came to realize that there's a, the unknown God. They came to know him and realized that Jesus Christ was above all the other gods in Athens. The place was lined, this, this roadway is lined with many ways to, many other avenues to believe. Our society is lined with many other ways to turn. Many other places to turn for comfort and strength, oftentimes just to turn within ourselves that I can take care of it myself instead of turning to Jesus Christ. And so these two that day turned to Jesus Christ. Delaney this morning is professing her turn to Jesus Christ over everything else society has to offer. What an amazing message. And Paul is telling them to stop turning to all the other gods and turn to Jesus. And I ask, do we? Are we turning to Jesus over everything else? When you turn, when you're in a hard time, when you're facing a hard circumstance, are you turning to Jesus first? Do you go to him in prayer? At a great moment, are you turning to him in praise? Is he our first instinct? Is he the God above everything else? Do we have this one God over all, as Paul is proclaiming to the Athenians? Anne's parents received that letter. And they wrote back and said they weren't excited about her going on a mission journey, as you can imagine. But they did know it was a worthwhile cause. And they said that it was up to Anne. And so on February 5th, 1812, Adoniram and Ann Judson became married. Twelve days later, they boarded a boat headed for the Far East. It's the last time Ann would ever see her family. They went to India, and they were hoping to minister, to be missionaries in Calcutta, but Calcutta wouldn't allow them into the city, and so they had to continue on, to, on the boat to the next location, which ended up being Burma. And this time in Burma was, I'd love to say, it was great, it was wonderful, but it was hard. This book, if you read this bibliography, it's amazing, but it's one of the most depressing books you'll ever read because of the continual death that they faced. New missionaries would come, and they would work with them, and they would die from tropical diseases. When they were on the boat, uh, Anne became pregnant, and so shortly after they arrived in Burma, because this boat ride takes several months, shortly after they arrive in Burma, she has a baby. And this new baby, as you can imagine, the great joy of a new child quickly is susceptible to one of the tropical diseases. And they had to bury their first child under the mango tree right near their hut. The years go by and they're trying to learn the Burmese language. They're trying to build a relationship with the people. 
They're trying to tell them about Jesus Christ, but those people, at least they didn't turn on them right away. They're willing to talk to him, but they're not willing to follow this foreign God. It was hard enough to learn the Burmese language, which many believe is the, the second hardest language to learn. Luckily, Adoniram, not luckily, but blessed by God, Adoniram was, had an amazing linguistic ability. He was fluent in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and English, and now soon Burmese. His wife, Anne, was highly intelligent too, and God had given her the gift of language, and, and she was fluent in the Burmese language too. And, and so year after year, it was a struggle. They had a second child, and they were so excited. And by year five, they had two graves underneath a mango tree. And no, nothing to show for it. Most people would say, Adoniram, why don't you go back? You have so much to offer. You could, be, uh, you could have fame and fortune. You could be the leader of our country. You could be the leader of any university that you wanted. But he knew that Jesus Christ was more important. And so by year six, they rejoiced as the angels rejoiced in heaven because they had their first convert, Meng, Meng Hao. He was a timberman from the hills and he would come down and he would listen to Adoniram. And everyone thought he was crazy for listening and believing, but he believed. Year six, two children's deaths, both of them have been ill six years and they have one person to accept Jesus Christ. By the 10th year, he had been working on this translation of the Bible into, into Burmese and he had been working through the Old Testament and also trying to reach out to the community where he was at and they had 18 people in his church. 18 people by year 10. Their life didn't get any easier. At one point, he was arrested and, and his wife, Anne, had to try to negotiate with the Burmese government. There was a war going on and they thought that he was a traitor. They thought he was a spy. And so the Burmese government had him arrested and so she's trying to negotiate and they would take him from torture camp to, from torture camp, to torture camp and she would go and she would see her husband being tortured while weaning a, a newborn child that he had yet to even see. And she finally got him set free. And shortly after, Anne passed away. And so you look at this story and it's, it's just so sad. It's so hard. Adoniram was in Burma for 38 years. He came back to America once for about two months after he'd been there for 34 years. And he came back for health reasons. And then he quickly went back. He said, if I'm going to die, I want to die among my people. And he went back to Burma. And his goal when he began his ministry in Burma was to translate the Bible. And he had hoped that he would have a church of 100 people. When he died after 38 years, at the age of 62, he had translated the entire Bible into to Burmese and he, had trans, and he had made half of a Burmese to English dictionary for the government. The government that had put him in prison had now commissioned him to be their translator. He had over 100 churches across Burma with over 10,000 converts. By 1921, the census in Burma shows, so he died in the 1850s. By 1921, Christians totaled 250,000 people. Today, he was a Baptist minister, or he was a Baptist missionary, and today, Burma has the third highest, or third highest population of Baptist people behind America and India. 
is Burma because of Adoniram and Ann Judson. And so we think about what's intimidating. Because of Paul going into this intimidating land of Athens, those two people accepted Jesus Christ. It says that many, but Luke makes sure for us to point out these two souls are two lost sheep and the angels are rejoicing. Because Adoniram and Anne were willing to travel across the world and never see their families again, Mong, Mong Hao and countless other Burmese have eternity in heaven. And so, as we come to this, I want to just encourage each one of us, as we set Jesus Christ as the God above everything else, Jesus Christ is the one that we turn to instead of what our society has to offer, instead of what Athens has to offer, instead of what the Burmese has to offer. If we turn to Jesus Christ, what kind of influence could we have? As we look at Delaney's life, what kind of influence is she going to have as she goes through high school and college to her friends and, and to those that she's going to bring to know Christ? As she gets married and has her own kids, it's exciting to think about the influence Delaney will have as she raises her children to follow Christ and her grandchildren will be impacted. And at the end of the 80 years, what kind of amazing testimony will Delaney have? Just like Adoniram, just like Paul, and hopefully, just like you and me. If you'll stand with me, let's pray. God, we just pray right now that we can be passionate for you that we can turn to you as the one true God, that you are the God above everything else that's offered, the God above anything that Athens would have been able to, to offer, the God above what the Burmese culture and the Burmese religion had to offer, the God above what our culture offers us every day. God, I pray right now that the people in this room will turn to you, that if there's people that have not accepted you as their savior, God, that this morning they will feel your conviction and they will come speak to one of us and be able to, to give their life over. God, I lift up right now a praise over Delaney, and as the angels are rejoicing, let us rejoice with them. And God, as we leave this place, and we go into those often intimidating situations at school, at work, at home, God, let us stand for you. Let us present you in an amazing way. And let's not be drawn away by the things that this culture has to offer, but be drawn to the one true God, the unknown God that is now known, Jesus Christ, in your name.